Being a new faculty member at a new institution can be challenging in normal times, but also has additional hurdles during COVID-19. Most institutions begin the academic year by providing orientation activities to help new faculty learn about the institution and to meet and network with their new colleagues. In this episode, we examine how the shift to an online orientation altered the experiences for new faculty members. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Emily Estrada and Martin Cohen. Emily is an assistant professor of sociology, and Martin is an assistant professor of criminal justice at SUNY Oswego. Emily and Martin both joined the Oswego faculty this fall. Welcome, Emily and Martin. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Our teas today are... I'm drinking coffee. Ooh, it's late in the day. No judgment, sorry. (laughs) I guess that is a lot of judgment. Ooh. (laughs) I'm also drinking sparkling water, so I'll switch between the two. And regular water. Yeah. I'm just straight up tap water. I have big red sun again. And I have Earl Grey today. Oh, nice. I like a good Earl Grey. I'm noticing you've been drinking black tea later in the day these days. That's because I've been getting so much less sleep since March. Well, you haven't upgraded to Martin's coffee in the late afternoon, so I guess that's a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very dark roast, so there's not a lot of caffeine in it. We've invited you here today to discuss the experience of joining a department during the pandemic. You've each worked at other institutions before. So can you talk a little bit about how joining Oswego during a pandemic is different than your experiences of joining previous faculty have been? I think there are some of the more obvious ways that it's been different for me this go round. It's challenging not having those face-to-face interactions with my new colleagues, with my new administration. And with the students, most certainly, even though I think that SUNY Oswego has done a pretty good job helping me feel integrated and connected to at least the university and my department, the students, I feel like I still am experiencing a pretty significant amount of disconnect. I think one of the biggest things that's been different for me And my previous institution, because when you first start, there's so much excitement and there's so much fanfare surrounding that transition into the new institution, you start to feel kind of bonded to the university itself. You start to feel kind of loyal to the university brand and to the image, and you start to feel pride for being a part of this new institution. And I think that that's been different this time for me because there is so much disconnect and campus really is so quiet, even though I'm working from campus a lot. It's just not the same type of allegiance, I guess, has not been the same for me this go round. It's interesting because I would say the same thing in terms of the allegiance thing. I felt the same way when I started before, and now I'm feeling the same way as you here. I would say, Overall, coming to SUNY Oswego was easier than my first transition, predominantly because I had learned a lot of things the first time around. First time around, I learned 
you got to hound people to get things, right? So the first time around, I was told your email address will be given to you on this day, your office will be given to this and this and this. And then when I reached out to people there to find out just various information, people would not respond to me until their contract started. That was not the case here at SUNY Oswego. I had the phone number of my department chair immediately after I had signed my contract. And essentially the person who would become my faculty mentor, I had their phone number. And so a lot of things were sorted out quite quickly. I had some difficulty with paperwork here at SUNY Oswego, getting all that sorted, people losing things, people putting in wrong information and sending my first paycheck to my address in Indiana, stuff like that. But other than that, from like a social perspective, I'd say that things were a lot smoother. But I think a lot of it also had to do with the fact that I had learned previously that you got to just hound people, get information. And so I felt very prepared. I hardly stressed me out transitioning. Yeah. And I will say that had I been starting in this position straight out of my PhD program, I think it would be a lot more challenging because like Martin just said, and he and I have talked about this previously, it is nice having that previous experience of starting a tenure track position at a university in normal times, so to speak, because we kind of know what's going to happen when we get back to that normalcy. And so if we're feeling less of an allegiance, and that may not be the right word, but if we're feeling less connected, connected, yeah, but more in like a school spirit type sense. If we're not necessarily feeling that school spirit right now, I know that it will come. I know it's going to happen. And that may not be the case for people who are coming straight out of their PhD programs who don't know that that will happen. When I started at my previous institution, I was hit with, you need to publish and you need to prep like four courses. And one of the courses was statistics, which I had never taught in my life. So I knew when I came to SUNY Oswego that I needed to have all my ducks in a row publication-wise. And so over the summer, I put in a lot of work working on publications so that in case things hit me really hard from a teaching standpoint at SUNY Oswego, that I would be able to take that hit. And luckily, to my surprise, transitioning over because of my experience prepping, knowing where to go for information, what strategies to follow, prepping some new courses just weren't as challenging as I experienced it four years ago. What are some of the types of things that you had to ask for that was not automatically given to you? that a new faculty perhaps might not know to ask about? Well, I think things related to technology, like the headset that I'm wearing right now, I didn't want to buy it myself. I know that funds are always pretty tight in a state school system, and especially given the situation that we're in right now. And so I reached out to CTS on campus and they were able to provide me with a headset and a wireless keyboard and a wireless mouse. Also things related to different programs that I need in order to do my research. I would agree with you though, Emily. One of the things that I really wanted to make sure I had was my email address so that I could sign up for instructor resources at the various textbook publishers. 
And then also getting my hands on desk and review copies of books so that I don't have to go and, and blow $300 on Amazon just to prep my classes. When I moved to my previous institution, they didn't give me my email address until day one. And so I had one week to prep three classes because I had one double class and I had to find textbooks and stuff. So all this stuff I bought on Amazon Prime so that I could have it. And so in this case, I started going after what's my email address. Can you hook me up with my Oswego and Blackboard? And so I was making sure technology-wise, I had all that. And then also regarding my campus computer, I just badgered people until I got what I needed. But I will say a lot of things came automatically. A lot of things came from my department chair, Roger Guy. He would text me and say, hey, did you ask for this? Did you ask for that? Hey, make sure to look at this opportunity. By the way, we have these funds in our department. You should try to ask for this from this person. And so I got a lot of help from my department chair, which is something that I did not get where I previously went straight out of grad school. It's really interesting hearing both of you talk about the transition here during a pandemic because it wasn't that long ago that I transitioned here and from a different institution. And I had a very similar experience. (laughs) I had a badger, but I knew to ask for certain things that I didn't know to ask for the first time around. I knew how the system worked. So I knew who to ask for certain kinds of things. So I had all the good technology and everything I needed up front too. But that's because we knew who to ask. And so that's interesting that that really hasn't changed. That's just experience speaking. <laughs> yeah. And I am still badgering people and I've been here for decades. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't always end. But that's really good advice for people starting to make sure that they do ask for the things that they're going to need to be successful. Yeah. I read this book over the summer and essentially one of the points that you learn from it is that don't be embarrassed to ask questions and get the things that you feel you need to succeed. And sometimes I think people feel, especially when you're brand new at an institution, you don't want to be sort of a hassle or an annoyance. You don't want to come off that way. And so I feel like some people are hesitant to just go out and ask for something. And that was one thing I learned to overcome coming to SUNY Oswego. I think that's absolutely right, that it's important to be proactive as a new faculty member. And that's probably the case whether or not you're starting in this insane environment or in more normal times. I also feel, though, that it's important to recognize how problematic that can be especially for members of certain social groups. So academia in general is elitist and it is very white. And so certain people, people who may identify with those groups or with that identity, they're going to be more comfortable with being proactive and getting their own and hounding the people and going and going until they get what they need. And I think that that is more challenging for people who are members of groups who have been historically underrepresented in the academy. And so while, yes, on one hand, and because this is a podcast, I should make it clear, I identify as a white person and probably more importantly, I am identified by others as a white person. And so I think in some ways it's easier for me as somebody who possesses that cultural capital, white cultural capital and white privilege to feel comfortable hounding people, whereas people from other underrepresented groups along a variety of dimensions may find that more challenging. I would agree 100% with you. I think even the fact that I'm a man, you come off more as a go-getter when you're a man badgering people about things, and it might not be the same for people of other groups. 
<laughs> I'm snapping because I really like that point. Good reflection there. <laughs> Good. For things where it's not clear, if you're asking for something that it's not clear that is generally provided, might it make sense perhaps to start within your department to talk to some of your colleagues that you feel comfortable with just to ask whether this is something that's normally done? Because people are concerned about pushing for things that could cause them to be perceived as being a problem in some sense. Might that be a useful starting point before you start pursuing something too aggressively? If it's something that's not going to happen, might it make sense to get a feel for that before you start the badgering process? I like that it's a badgering process. (laughs) It's work. Yeah, that's how it goes. So I emailed Roger and I was like, hey, I'm going to ask you these millions of questions. Do you know who I need to go after? And sometimes he directed me to the person who became my faculty mentor, Maggie. And other times he directed me to Michelle, our administrative person in our department. And then otherwise it'd be like, reach out to this person in this department. And so I preface it with, hey, I want to succeed when I get here. These are some questions I have. And I think any relatively rational department chair wouldn't have a problem with helping you out there if you say, hey, I want to succeed and this will help me succeed. And you just have to be honest about it, in my opinion. I would agree with that. I think that mentorship within the department is really important. I also think that mentorship outside the department can also be really helpful because sometimes there are a lot of dynamics within departments I feel very comfortable with my department. We're smaller and I feel comfortable voicing any concerns that I may have or asking advice. But at the same time, I think it's important to be able to go to people that aren't so close to home, so to speak, so that if there are awkward, uncomfortable questions, you can go to them without as much writing on it, if that makes sense. I think that's a really good point making connections to other departments early or people just across campus, whether or not they're in an academic department or not, is really important. And you can bounce things off of other folks and find out if that's how other departments do things. Yeah. (laughs) But I would imagine that's a little more challenging under these circumstances, because typically at the start of the semester, when there's all those bonding experiences, when there's a big dinners, welcoming new faculty, the lunches, when the presidents and the provosts and the deans welcome everyone and create this nice, positive, welcoming environment. There's also lots of informal gatherings and receptions where new faculty get to meet other new faculty in person, as well as people from other departments who might share some similar interests. Has there been very many opportunities to form those wider networks beyond your departments this year? For me, there has been. And again, this has been the consequence of me going after certain opportunities. So at the beginning, when I started, I told Roger that I needed service. And I understood that there's a pandemic going and that getting service would be difficult. And to some extent, I feel like given that I was new, he wanted to shield me a little bit from it, which is pretty typical of department chairs for the first semester. But I went out of my way to tell him, look, this is technically my fifth year in academia. So I want to try my best to keep that going. And so at that point, he was like, okay, well, this committee needs someone, this committee. And in the end, I joined about three university-wide committees. And so that's allowed me to interact with people completely outside even of my college. And so that's really allowed me to expose myself to other people, hear different viewpoints, understand certain organizational frames. So again, it was because I badgered Roger about service work. And we have had monthly new faculty networking Zoom chats that I've enjoyed. I don't know what typically happens. 
at SUNY Oswego in normal times. But like you were saying, John, at the beginning of the semester, there's all this kind of flurry of activity and dinners and lunches. And I think that that's all great. And a part of me really does miss having missed that. But I think what's been really great about the new faculty networking Zoom things that we do is that they've happened across the semester. That's not how it was at my previous institution. There was a lot of stuff happening at the beginning of the semester, like let's get all excited, newbies. But then it kind of fizzled off as the semester went on. And I think that having the Zoom meetings every month has helped keep that connection going. And there are breakout sessions. And so you get to know people a little bit more personally. So I think that that's been good. Yeah, I would agree with Emily on that one. Those have been very helpful sessions. It's been also good to see where I fall in terms of how prepared I feel compared to other faculty. And and one thing that stands out is the fact that I have this experience. It makes it seem like I'm a little more confident in what to do and how to handle different things just because of that experience. So that's been great. But yes, learning from other new faculty and also people outside of my immediate social circle. However, I will also point out the importance of having a faculty mentor who is not in your department. When I was at my previous institution, I had someone in the communications department. His name was Wes. And I could confide everything in him. When I was on the job market, I had several authors and he was one of the ones who told me to take this one when I was mulling it over with him. And so the thing that was really nice was I could go to him and say, hey, I don't understand why my department's doing this. Do you know why they would be doing that? Or I don't like this. I still text him. I still talk to him about stuff. So that's something I think that where there's an opportunity at SUNY Oswego is to connect new faculty with people outside of their department as well. That was something actually that was put together this year for the first time, and it was the Dean of Arts and Sciences, Kristen Kreil, who, to a large extent, organized that. We've been working with her to help coordinate it, but she put the whole program together, and I've been really pleased with how it's been working. Yes. And I think we may continue this beyond the pandemic, because it does seem to provide that ongoing sort of connection. Because as you said, Emily, typically there's this big flurry for three or four weeks at the beginning of the semester with various receptions at different levels. And then there's nothing until the very end of the semester where there's a short flurry. And then again, another short flurry at the beginning of the spring semester. And then it pretty much disappears until you come back with new faculty in future years to these same events. Yeah. And we have the Slack that we've been using, the new faculty. And I think that Slack has been really effective as well. And there was someone in our cohort who posted a message that was like this open call of, hey, is anybody else on campus? You want to go for a walk? And she and I went back and forth a little bit. And a few weeks ago, we went on a walk around campus. And it was really great getting to know her. I am a transplant to the area. I have spent all of my life in the South. And so she is from New York State and she's been really helpful and kind of helping me think about the weather and what to expect. And I actually met up with her earlier today. She had a bag full of clothes for my daughter that her sister picked up from a friend to give to me, (laughs) which was just so kind and generous and really kind of the vibe that I've gotten from New York State since moving here in July. But it's happening. It's just kind of on a smaller scale and a little bit more low key than it was at my previous institution, which makes me really excited for what's to come whenever we're normal, right? It's just going to blow up. 
it's going to be all the more better than it is right now. You know, one thing that just sort of occurred to me, I wonder to what extent the fact that with this whole pandemic, right, we've been telling each other to be patient with each other to show grace. And I wonder to what extent the fact that maybe other people in our organizational environments doing that is being beneficial to our success here. I wonder how much that plays a role outside of just our own attempts to connect with people. Yeah. I don't know. I will say I've had several conversations with people in our cohort, people who have come straight from PhD programs, and some of them have communicated how they feel like starting in the pandemic has kind of decreased the pressure they would otherwise feel that it's giving them a little bit of an opportunity to kind of ease into this new position and the new institution in ways that probably wouldn't have happened had we not had the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic is awful. Like, I feel (laughs) compelled to like give that. Like, of course, I think everybody, they would welcome the pressure. Like, I'm not trying to suggest anything otherwise, but it's more about like silver lining. Like (laughs) the patience and the grace, everybody is doing the best they can right now. I found that it's really great that senior faculty are really busy with other things because they're not volunteering everybody to do everything else. (laughs) (laughs) And having said that, if you'd like to make some more connections across campus, we do have a teaching center advisory board if either of you would like to join. We won't pressure you for that now, but if at some point you would like to, just let us know and we'll add you to the list. That's actually the first committee I joined when I was a faculty member transferring from a different institution to connect with other folks. That was the way I did it. And look at me now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've talked a lot about the differences and really seeing yourself having that experience coming in and how that's benefited. If we were to give like a top five things for new faculty to think about asking for or to get help on when they start at a new institution, when they've not had experience before, what are those things? I would reach out to other people teaching in the department, ask them to share syllabi with you. Because one thing I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure that when I come and I teach that my classes aren't completely different from what the students are used to. And to some extent, I experienced that. One of my classes, I made it way too hard for them. And that was a class, again, that was completely my own doing. It was a special topic selective. But the other classes, I was able to reach out to some of the faculty and they were kind enough to share some of their materials with me. So I was able to see, okay, this is what the standard looks like. Now I can prep my own course in that way. And so that is definitely reach out to other people in your department have constant communication with your chair. I'd say that's definitely a a good thing. And get your technology sorted out way before. Yeah, I think the technology thing is really big. I would also say to be proactive in asking for help in terms of how to navigate the various portals that we have to access. Like they're all new to us, especially things that are a little bit more complicated like degree works. I know in my department, I'm expected to do advising. I think that's been a common expectation among faculty on campus. And so you're not being a pain to ask for help. And if you don't understand, you have to ask and ask and ask again until it makes sense. And I think that when you come into a new place, you may feel like you're being a pain, right? Or that you're being a nuisance or that you're encroaching on somebody else's precious time. And maybe you are being all of those things. 
But it's kind of the expectation of a new faculty member. Like you're supposed to be those things. You're supposed to ask those things because otherwise you're never going to learn. And in a few years, you will be the person who a new faculty member is asking questions to. And so, yeah, that's what I would say. And we should probably note that DegreeWorks is software designed to help students transition the way to a degree. It lists all the requirements, which courses satisfy them and so forth. And it can be a little challenging when you're seeing it for the first time and just learning about the gen ed requirements. But not all departments have first-year faculty doing advisement. That's probably more of an exception, I think. I'm not positive on that. I know we don't assign in my department new faculty for advisees until at least their second year just to give them time to adjust to the institution and the requirements and so forth. I think some of that could be because I am coming in with prior years of service Same here. and I just have two advisees. And so it's not like I have 20. It's almost like my training wills. I feel like my advising training wills. I mentioned degree works, but really it is about figuring out the gen ed curriculum, all of the requirements for graduation, like they're significantly different than my previous institution. And so asking those questions, because I feel like advising in particular, like I take it really seriously. I know that students are ultimately responsible for their progress and for keeping an eye on their progress to degree and, and all of that. But I feel like they're in my hands to a certain extent. And so I want to know the ins and outs and I want to be a very like hands-on advisor. And so that's really what I was talking about, like figuring out how to advise effectively. Regarding the advisees, I have like 20 advisees this semester. And luckily at my previous institution, we were dealing with degree work. So all that I needed to figure out was sort of what were some of the parameters regarding sequence and prereqs and stuff. So I was able to deal with that pretty well, but it is difficult. I feel like some students are less independent than others and they demand more attention. And when I'm reaching that season where it's conference season, even though they're virtual and you prepare for that and I have an R&R and all these other things, and then students ask questions that they can pretty much look up themselves and they want a Zoom meeting for it and you can't just say no. And so that's been frustrating. And luckily from DegreeWorks, I'd actually say the version of DegreeWorks that we're using at SUNY Oswego is better than the version we were using where I previously worked. And so it's been a lot more streamlined, a lot faster. You don't have to like manually search students' names. They're in a drop-down menu, which makes it so much easier. So in that regard, I'm okay with it. But yeah, advising in November is never great. I think one of the things that you guys are highlighting without directly saying is that one of the things that a new faculty member has to do that isn't totally obvious, but it takes a long time to actually figure out how the courses you're teaching map to the curriculum within your department and how that curriculum in the department maps to the entire campus and how the gen ed fits in and just really getting a good mental model of how the institution works as a whole for students, especially because different institutions are so different from one another and how that is put together that I think we underestimate often how long it actually takes to learn how that works and what that looks like. Both for our students, we underestimate how long it takes them to learn it and also how long it takes us to learn it. I've been here for eight years. I was asking questions about our degree to my department chair. I was like, you know what? I've actually been confused about this, I don't know, for eight years. And I would really like an answer <laughs> about X. <laughs> Again, the nice thing that I have, at least with Roger, is that I will just, in the middle of a Zoom meeting, if I don't have the answer to a question, I'll pick up my cell phone and I'll give him a ring. And he gladly answers the phone and answers the question. So again, it's having that support makes life a lot easier. 
Maybe we could talk a little bit about your adjustment to pandemic teaching. In the spring, I think you had some experience with a rapid transition. Over the summer, you had some chance to prepare for the fall and, again, a somewhat unusual teaching environment. Could you tell us a little bit about the ways in which you're teaching and how that's been going? So I am teaching exclusively online this semester, asynchronous courses. I decided to do asynchronous this fall because in the spring, when we did have that rapid transition, it seemed like a lot of the stuff I was seeing kind of emphasized making things as simple and as straightforward as possible for students and for instructors. And based on what I was reading, that meant doing asynchronous. And so that's what I did in the spring when we transitioned at my previous institution. And that's what I decided to do this semester as well. And I think it's working well for the most part. I will say what I've come to realize at the talent of the semester now, I feel like it's working for the students. I did an informal mid-semester survey and students responded. They had some constructive criticism, some constructive feedback, which I welcomed and was glad to be able to address in this semester going forward. But there was also some really positive things that I would expect to have received in a regular face-to-face semester. And so I feel like I'm at the point where I have this realization that it's working for the students for the most part, even though I know they're overwhelmed and stressed and bless their hearts and all that stuff. It's working for them. I feel like it's working less for me. I didn't realize until I haven't been in the classroom for months and months now, I didn't realize how much that face-to-face interaction sustained me as a teacher. I never realized that the energy that I had have was so dependent on the energy students were giving me, which is really not that great of me as a sociologist. I should have had this kind of awareness all along, but I didn't. And now that I don't have them, now that I don't have that face-to-face, as the semester's gone on, I feel like my energy and my motivation has kind of waned, even if the students still feel really into the class and into my video lectures and all of that. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I'm starting to notice it now too. And I feel like oftentimes my own success in the classroom has depended on being able to get a sense of what the student culture is by interacting with them, understanding the body language. I like to shoot the breeze with students. I like to show up 10 minutes before class and then usually have those three or four super devoted students that are already sitting there. And I like to shoot the breeze with them because you get to figure out what TV shows they're watching, what music they're listening to. And that allows you an opportunity to investigate those things and find ways to connect what you're teaching to that. Especially with my students, they all watch all kinds of crime shows and stuff. So when I'm teaching criminal justice, it's very easy to do that. So that had always been one of the pillars of my success. And so going completely online, it's been more difficult. And so similar to Emily, I've been relying on Blackboard surveys. And when you deal with that feedback, when it's anonymous, it can be harsh. And those people who are willing to face it, to confront it and accept it are the people who succeed afterwards. And there's one student on a Blackboard survey this semester, when I asked him, what's your least favorite thing about the class? They said, Martin. (laughs) Well, that's not very constructive. It's not constructive. And they're wrong. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And my response to the class, I usually will send the anonymous results in a PDF file in an email. Well, usually in class, when I do those surveys, I'll deal with it on board. But sent it and I said, I'd like for all the students to like me, but I implore them that next time they take the survey, they should name specific things they don't like about me because then I can do something about it, maybe. (laughs) 
But the thing is, you have to have a thick skin with this stuff. And and if you can handle that, then you'll succeed. But I will say, when I taught at my previous institution, I was ready for the coronavirus. I'm a very anxious person to begin with. And so when things were happening in Europe and in China, I was already freaking out. And so I started adopting the high flex model in January. And so when everything hit the fan, it was really not a big deal for me. It was more just me supporting the students, making sure they're okay, they're feeling okay, they can handle everything. And I backed off a little bit and I allowed them all to adjust. But for me, that was okay. And next semester, even though I'm teaching synchronous via Zoom or whatever, I'm still going to offer the high flex model informally by offering asynchronous content that's consistent with what we're learning in class, because I feel like that is going to be, to some people, unfortunately, to me, fortunately, the future of teaching. To just say one thing about what you were saying just now, Martin, I think that in terms of not being in the classroom face-to-face, missing those more informal interactions have been really hard. I think a big part of my success in teaching in a face-to-face environment has to do with I purposely am very authentic in the classroom. And so I show students my personality and and that works for me. I know that it doesn't work for everyone. And I think that that's fine. But it works for me that they get to know who I am as a person. They still have to respect my authority and my knowledge. But at the same time, being a little bit more informal with them is very effective for me. And I don't have that opportunity as much teaching online. So what I have found Going back to your question, John, of how I've adapted, I have found that I've become a little bit more informal in my written communication with students. So whereas before, when I'm face-to-face, I can be informal. And so when I'm sending them an email, I can be very formal and professorial and all of that. But now they don't get any of that informality. And so I'm using emojis and putting the (laughs) gifs in my emails. There's a really great Snoop Dogg TikTok about reading the syllabus that's gone out to all of my classes several times. Nice. And so I don't know. I'll be interested to see what the evals say about that, if they say anything at all, and the people who are evaluating my courses, their feedback on those things. But I think that that's one strategy I found of introducing that informality in an online setting. I had a couple of students indicate how much they really like emojis and things. My TA had done something that I thought was really stellar, and I sent her a medal. Like I sent her nice. like oh, an emoji funny. medal. She's like, I really like it when you do stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do more of that, please. Yeah. yeah. So then I was like, oh, okay. I thought people would think I was really dorky. So I just started doing it more yeah. for the other students too. And it seems uplifting. Well, and it's like their language, right? Yeah. And it's authentic dorkiness, which I think is a key. Yeah, definitely. And that's exactly what I thought when you said that, Rebecca. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty sure my students think I'm like a dork sending out this Snoop Dogg, whatever. (laughs) And I am. There's no getting around that. But it's endearing. (laughs) It's a part of my charm. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was going to be charming or not. That was the key. Like, is this going to be a turn off or is it going to be something good? (laughs) Yeah, you could go one of two ways. Yeah. Yeah. We'll include a link to this Snoop Dogg video in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> I already have it because I've sent it out to my students as well. So <laughs> Cool. Are there any things that you've tried this semester that you hadn't done in the past that you're going to continue even in a post-pandemic world in terms of your teaching? I am really excited about Flipgrid forums. It's like a discussion board, except that students record a video of themselves responding to the prompt, and then I require that students reply 
to each other with a video message. And it's not without its issues. I recognize what those are. And at the same time, I feel like it's been really great for me to get to know my students more personally than I typically would in kind of a more standard discussion board format. And I think that students are getting to know one another better as well, because I see when I grade them from week to week, I see that the same people are responding to each other or they're saying like, oh, you talked about this a few weeks ago. And I never really have seen that in a traditional form. There's something about the video that works really Really well. I only do it for the smaller class that I'm teaching. I couldn't do it for a hundred person intro class, I don't think, but it's proving effective for my upper division course. I don't know if I will continue it moving forward, but I've really enjoyed it. I've used VoiceThread, which is very similar. One advantage of Flipgrid is that now that Microsoft owns Flipgrid, it's a free service provided to educators. But one of the things I did is I allowed students to either use just voice or video, and they almost exclusively used just the voice. They weren't very comfortable sharing videos. But even when they were just sharing voice, it was in an asynchronous online class. One of the things that really struck me, and many of the students commented on this in some of the other discussion forums, is whenever they read something in the course from that person, they'd hear it in the voice of the student because they'd learned the voices of students and it created a little more sense of community or connection to the other students that was generally not there when they were text-only discussion forums. Yeah, I agree. I've never used Flipgrid, but I do think that I'll explore that a little bit. But I will continue to use the Blackboard discussion forums, at least some form of online discussion. I also am going to use Zoom for office hours and meetings with students. I find Zoom to be so great for advising and any sort of meeting with a student, like especially when it comes to, I had a student the other day needing me to explain something about an assignment. So I was able to just share my screen, show them in the syllabus what I meant by whatever. I was able to show them how to make use of Google Scholar and how you can leverage that when you're looking things up in the library website. And with that being said, too, incorporating HyFlex in pretty much everything I do, I was talking to Roger yesterday, and some students, even though they're seniors and juniors, are still having difficulty finding peer-reviewed articles. And so I told them, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and make a video that shows you how to use Google Scholar, how to use the library database, how to get what you need. And then I have that video, and I can just copy and paste it on subsequent Blackboard forums. But I also think that the asynchronous content that I've created over the last two years, and especially a lot of it that's been created this semester, I'm going to continue to share it in, in subsequent classes and upkeep it. I think as we start to cater to newer students, people coming from non-traditional backgrounds, having the asynchronous option in any classes, I think, would help break down barriers and help students succeed. And so that's something I feel like this high flex approach to pretty much all teaching, at least it's easier in criminal justice. It's not that easy in other courses. But for me, that's something I'm going to apply to my classes until someone tells me I can't. And I think a lot of people this summer have created new videos and other explanatory materials that can work in any modality. And that's something we strongly encourage faculty to do in the workshops that we did last spring and over the summer as well. And it's nice to see that students generally react really positively to having those video resources. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Typically, new faculty orientation consists of this series of meetings where there's a tremendous amount of information thrown at you all at once. This time, all those presentations were converted into videos that people could access at their own time and pace. How did that work? And what could institutions do to make the transition easier? Because the type of transition you experience is also the type of transition situation 
that many adjuncts will experience who are not physically located in the communities where they're teaching. So even when the pandemic ends, I think there may be some lessons learned from this new faculty orientation that can continue beyond. What worked well from the orientation and what could we have done better to reach out to people who were not physically present? So one thing that I think worked really well was that, again, there are recorded videos that we could access. I think we didn't necessarily need two days of sort of where you were on Zoom. I don't think we necessarily needed that. I think one day would have been good. And then you should have been left with the videos, like this asynchronous content. I think that helped me a lot. When I needed to look at how to do something, I was able to just quickly go on that Blackboard page and find the resources I needed. And if I couldn't find it, I would just email my chair and it would be fixed. So I think that was very good. I would much rather do what I did here than go and sit with people in a building and do all that. Like I get the social aspect of that and that can be arranged. But when I'm going to orientation, I want to learn what I need to do to succeed in my job. At least that's how I work. And so I like the fact that I was able to just sit there and focus on the content that was most necessary for me at that time. Because there was a lot of stuff that I already knew because I've already learned it at my previous institution that wasn't necessarily pertinent to me. And so by allowing that asynchronous content to stay up for so long, I think that helped me succeed a lot. Did we need two days? No. One thing that I also think is very important is for departments on the department level to form a committee and create onboarding packets. That's something I pushed for really hard where I used to work and then it just kept on getting pushed away and away and away. But what people within the department think is important that your department chair can just email you right when your contract's been signed and accepted. And then you know, oh, reach out to this person if you need your email, reach out here. This is when you'll get this. This is what you need. Reach out to this person for X, Y, and Z. I think those things, if you focus on working on them right now, and it's just a document you can update over time, especially here at SUNY Oswego, where we use Google Drive for everything. It's so easy just to invite someone to the document. So I think a lot of preemptive stuff can be done. But I will say, I very much enjoy not having to go to campus and sit through orientation that I didn't think was necessary to me because it's not my first rodeo. I really like that idea, Martin, of having onboarding packets at the departmental level. I think that would alleviate some of the emphasis on faculty being proactive in getting what they need that we were talking about before, especially considering how problematic that is for a variety of reasons. I think the orientation, I agree. I liked the videos, found them very informational. I liked the breakout session that we had. I think it was actually on the second day where we got to pick which group we wanted to go ask more questions to. I think more of that could have been beneficial because we only had an opportunity to really speak with one group around campus. I wish that as part of the orientation, there would have been information on shared governance, the structure of shared governance in the SUNY system and on SUNY Oswego, because it is a multi-level system, bureaucracy, and it's still not clear to me exactly what that order of things looks like, who's in charge of what. So some like really clear mapping of the shared governance hierarchy and just some really basic flow charts on processes would have also been really, really helpful for me during orientation. Stepping aside from orientation specifically and thinking more about transitioning your life from one place to another, 
I think SUNY Oswego did a pretty good job helping us transition into the university system itself, but I really could have used some assistance with housing, some more formal assistance. And I did reach out. I think my acting chair is phenomenal. She put me in contact with people who put me in contact with people who put me in contact with people. I was talking to all these people, some of which I still have yet to see face to face. And that was all great. And I have a place to live here, but it was just a lot of work on my end trying to put that together. And the place that we're in right now is not the best. It's probably one of the biggest stressors in my life right now. And so had there been some more institutional support, like I don't know what that would look like. I think that that would have been really, really helpful. And I think that that's probably the case whenever somebody's transitioning into this position in general, but especially in the pandemic when I couldn't travel easily to the area and take a look at things for myself. Yeah, that's a problem for sure. Housing here has been an issue for a very long time. Yeah, we had the same issue. Luckily, through Maggie, she connected me with the right person. And then, bam, I found a place to stay. And then the person didn't like that we had a dog. And so I offered him extra $100 a month so we can just keep the dog in there. And luckily, he went for it. And so now we have a place. But yeah, it was a major stressor. And when you have to live in the Syracuse area, the cost of living is different there than in Oswego. And so it almost makes your salary less when you're living outside of the area. So when you're an assistant professor making an assistant professor salary, you want to maximize that. And so by living in Oswego, it's much better. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you, Emily. That's one of the major issues. To your point, Martin, it may be easier to find an adequate place to live in the Syracuse area, but I have never in my life experienced a housing market like the one that I tried to get into here in Oswego. I mean, it was just bizarre. And so it just does seem to be much more informal than in most places that I've ever lived. And that was a struggle not being from this area. It really was the strength of weak ties for me is what made it so that my family and I could have a roof over our head when we moved here in July. And I will say that living in Oswego is awesome. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like living here. Yeah, I find it quite charming and weird in a really great way. (laughs) But I'm also holding my breath for that winter (laughs) because, again, I born and raised in Texas, North Carolina for 12 years. We shall see. We should know just for people not from Oswego that Oswego is a city which saw a very big peak in population by the mid-1800s with the canal system. And since then, the population has gradually declined with the loss of the industry. So housing prices are relatively low in the region. And there's a lot of houses that are very old with varying quality, some of which is very low quality and some of which is very high. But it's difficult to find good housing. And it's a bit of a search. It's a challenge, especially when you're trying to make those arrangements from another part of the country. We always end by asking, what's next? I'm going to make sure I get tenure. That's what's next. I'm going to keep on crushing it and get tenure. (laughs) (laughs) What's next for me? I'll say regroup, recharge, and reboot. And that was not a prepared line. Noted for the record. That's just all spontaneous. I don't know if it makes a whole lot of sense. But yeah, just coming back, just taking the winter break that is around the corner, taking that time to breathe a little bit and to make some adjustments and then getting through the spring semester and then getting back to some type of normalcy. I have to believe that's on the horizon. So yeah. Yeah, fingers crossed. I think we're all hoping for that. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really helpful, and I hope it'll help multiple institutions really think through just transitions for faculty in general. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.